0: Michael Osterlink here and I'm talking to Dr. Jake DeSillis. He's an author, investor, entrepreneur, and podcaster. He writes about entrepreneurship, financial independence, and freedom. He is the host of the Voluntary Life podcast. He is a perpetual traveler, a minimalist, a productivity geek, an avid reader of philosophy and psychology, and a marathon inline skater. He is also the author of three books, Job Free, Four Ways to Quit the Rat Race, and Achieve Financial Freedom, on Your Terms, the second book, Becoming an Entrepreneur, How to Find Freedom and Fulfillment as a Business Owner, and his third book, Negotiate for Mutual Profit. How are you doing, Jake?
1: I'm doing really well, Michael.
0: Thanks. How are you? Uh, fantastic. I have to thank you, actually. Um, y- y- you have been an inspiration to me, um, and-, and such an inspiration to me in terms of like listening to your podcast and reading your materials. That I'm actually generating a three year digital nomad plan. Um, And it's uh, been inspired a lot by the work that you've been doing over these many years and your own life and your own life story. So, first of all, thank you.
1: Well, that's great to hear. (laughs) That's really great to hear.
0: Yeah. Um, So, obviously, I just kind of mentioned some of the things you do, and we'll get into your background, your story, and what you're presently doing. Um, but maybe you could start by telling us a little bit, some of the formative experiences that you had that led you to the life that you now lead as a digital nomad, as a podcaster, as a traveler, as someone who's kind of exploring the world. And I also acknowledge too, that uh, we both share libertarian sensibilities. So which I also appreciate about your work.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's a, it, it's such a big topic and, and it's one of those things that I think about quite a lot. Like what. Why do I think the way that I do now? What would the influences on me? Um, I mean, I guess for, to take, we could take this in many ways, but one of the things that I'm doing now is I have had a huge, I had about uh, just over 10 years ago, a huge life change in terms of leaving a career behind that I had. So, as you mentioned in the intro, I, I have a PhD and I worked as a consultant in the transport and urban development fields. And I was very much, you know, that was my identity. I, I, have, I was a specialist. I was um, well-respected in my field, and I had a career um, build, growing and building a business, and I sold it. I sold the business, and I changed uh, completely what I do with my time. So um, even though I have a lot of technical knowledge in this, in this particular area, in pedestrian movement consulting and transport and urban development, I haven't done any of that for many years. I've been focusing on things that I'm really interested in, and in particular, um, finding ways of achieving more personal freedom in life, and also finding ways of thinking and writing and and talking about the principles that really inspire me um, to find uh, the good life, I guess. And so that's what I do now in, in the podcast, The Voluntary Life, which is really focused on ways of, Achieving a life of your own choosing, not just doing what you, you know, maybe the default option is, but choosing for yourself how to live.
0: Let, let me, let me ask you a question uh, before you go on. Uh, so you had an identity, urban development. Um, my background is psychology, I, I, I do coaching and I, I'm very interested in how people create their identities and then t- disconnect or recreate new identities and, and separate themselves from their old identities, which is really a, really a challenging thing. And 99% of the population will never even consider it. And the other percent of the population that might consider it will have a hard time in most cases actually doing it. How did you, you know, someone who's so well respected in your field, you have a PhD your so your career, how did you disidentify from that identity and create a whole new identity?
1: Well, it was, it was a big challenge. I mean, it's, it's funny because um, I had a lot of ideas about what would happen when I got a PhD, for example, that it would give me all sorts of advantages. And actually, in many ways, it didn't give me that many advantages. You know, it's not like I got upgraded into first class or anything on, <laughs> on planes or anything like that for being a doctor. Um, uh, obviously, I'm not a medical doctor, but you know, um, but, but it did give me advantages for sure in terms of a career identity. And it's very, that can be very alluring too. It's nice to be a specialist and to be considered to be you know, somebody who knows about this particular field and you, you it's very easy to invest your ego in that yeah. and to and to, you know, enjoy being somebody who in some ways, you know, you're sort of looked up to as, as somebody who knows about this stuff. So. And the thing is that for a long time, I was so fascinated by the work that I did and so passionate about it and so interested in it that um, I was very happy pursuing that career and, and building that business. Um, because that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to make the world better for pedestrians. I wanted to, to um, write some of the bad design flaws that had happened, particularly in the 1960s, uh, especially in, in, in cities and urban areas. And so I was very passionate about that. What happened was that I, I really lost my passion for that work and gained, my, and gained passion, I guess, for other things. And that came about through many things partly because when you're actually working in the field that I was working in, it's very hard to make fundamental changes a lot of the time if you're dealing with, for example, uh, planning rules about how streets and buildings and cities must be designed that have kind of ossified these bad design practices. And it's very hard to make changes, at the, uh, to change the whole of the planning system, if you like. This is a very slow, long-term process. So I encountered some, you know, some things that, that I found disillusioning in some ways in the, in the work. Also, just the general bureaucracy of dealing with local governments and stuff was also, um, you know, just a hassle. And, and as an entrepreneur, you encounter quite a lot of barriers when you start a business. That teaches you a lot about, uh, you know, how difficult it is to create something new in the world and, and the, the the barriers to doing so. But what I felt also was. At the same time, there were other things that I was getting more interested in. I was very focused on changing the world outside, changing street networks to make the world better for pedestrians. And I got more interested in changing myself and in looking at what I could do to live my values in my own life. You know, if I can't change the whole planning system and make the world better for all pedestrians, at least what I can do is live my values in my own life. And so I got interested in how, what the meaning of that could be as a life for me. And, And at the same time, I saw that I had an opportunity To potentially build and grow this business and sell it which is always something i've been interested in doing but it that became quite a core turning point because it allowed me to change my focus in life from that career oriented go out and impact this industry to more like okay what can i do to my own life uh, to change the way that i think and that led to you know all the things that i talked about on the podcast and some of the things that you mentioned like exploring travel and seeing different parts of the world but also exploring what my values were when it comes to my own relationships and you know now I'm a parent thinking about how those values translate into parenthood and so forth so I I think that's what made the transition something that wasn't I mean although it was still uncomfortable and it's a lot it's quite challenging to leave one career behind and do something different I had the opportunity to do it because of the financial independence that selling the business gave me but the most important thing is I had the drive to do it because I became passionate about writing and podcasting and, and doing the other things that I'm now doing.
0: Did, in, in exploring your values, was there a particular program you used to, to, to do that exploration or a particular uh, way of thinking about values that you used to explore a tool?
1: A no, it was really just, um, you mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm interested in libertarianism. It started out with an interest in, in sort of ideas of liberty. As I was building a business, thinking about entrepreneurship and the ways that that's, uh, there are barriers to that. Then I got more interested in thinking about how those values translate into my personal life. Mm-hmm. So I, especially through books like there's a book by Harry Brown called How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World, which is really, you know, he in a way that that was a, a very influential book for me because that he, he took the same approach of changing his focus onto his own life and thinking about how to move his values towards what he can do in his own life. And although I disagree with Harry Brown in some ways, I think he's very inspiring to me, the way that he did that. And so really, in terms of, it wasn't really a program, it was more just reading a lot of psychology and philosophy. And in particular, I started doing a psychology book club, um, and that's actually how um, my wife and I got to know each other, through doing the psychology book club. And so I just became very interested. I'd got, I'd been interested in psychology a bit through work. When I started to employ people, I needed to understand, I realized that I really needed to understand people a bit better. Um, but then, um, you know, when I started thinking about changing my own life in significant ways, I got more interested in psychology as well. So yeah, it's basically just looking at psychology and philosophy.
0: So I'm going to put you on the spot regarding your wife. Do you remember which book you guys were reading when you guys met? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. (laughs)
1: <laughs> On to the next. Well, <laughs> we, we we knew each other before the book club started, but okay. we got to know each other much better through it. Okay. Right. And um, oh, no, I can't remember what the first books were.
0: <laughs> <laughs> as long as you remember your anniversary, that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, you you mentioned Harry Brown's book as a book that uh, kind of opened your thinking up, mm. and Harry Brown's book is is as you kind of already acknowledge is, is kind of opening up your own thinking about your as as an individual, about your individual life and your relationship with other people, as opposed to, you know, a set of policies, libertarian policies and stuff. Mm. What other books, uh, philosophy or psychology, did you, in the earlier days, would you consider formative in your thinking in terms of your own inner freedom and thinking about the kind of life you wanted to create for yourself?
1: Well, I wrote a little bit about this um, in in my book, Job Free, that I had a very, very... uh, Important relationship, uh, a mentor in my life early on, who really taught me a lot. Um, and this was somebody who I originally met because I was interested in. I come from a very left-wing family, and my my background it's sort of. I grew up around very left-wing ideas, and especially like communism and these kinds of ideas. And I, I came to question all of that. And I met someone who had also been involved with those kind of uh, political ideas, but who had is was essentially a self-made man. He was somebody who built his own business. Um, and he's the first person who talked to me about the idea of achieving financial independence mm-hmm. and that, that being something that is possible. And it was actually hearing, I think, you know, books can be great, but hearing somebody else who's actually doing something like that is incredibly inspiring. And that was to me. So um, we became friends, and uh, in many ways, he was like a, a big mentor to me. Uh, he almost got involved in the business that I started, but in the end, he didn't. Um, but he did help me a lot in, t- in, in starting the business that I did. And so that, I think, was a, a very formative influence on me. Was, and I, I met him when I was in my uh, late teens, and he was in his mid 20s and was already building a business. So he was that bit ahead of me, and I could see him build a business and move towards financial independence. The interesting thing is that he talked about uh, this goal of just making, this was back in the, in the nineties, just making a a million pounds and then retiring. Um, and that, you know, he mentioned that his idea was, well, you don't really need more than that. if You want to just live a life where you can, you know, read books and think interesting ideas and stuff. Now in the end, He went on to become fabulously wealthy and carried on earning lots of money. And I don't, you know, I I didn't follow the route that he did. And in many ways, I think, I think in some ways it's a shame that he abandoned the dream that he did have to Mm -hmm. just um, quit the rat race because he didn't, he went in a different route and just became more and more involved in, in, uh, in uh, his work in many ways. I followed the original plan that I found so inspiring that he told me about, and I did sell my business and just give it up. (laughs)
0: Well, it's interesting to know that you had a a mentor who who kind of was your North Star. And now you are playing that role for millions of other people through your podcast, through your books, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, good on you for doing that. That's awesome. When when you, you obviously had some books that were formative, you had this relationship with this gentleman, kind of opened your eyes. What might you say were some of the emotional and mental roadblocks, if you had any? for creating this new life? Like, you know, going from someone, I'm not saying this is necessarily just you, but everyone, you know, kind of in the conventional space, you you have a path, kind of culture, family, drives you in a certain direction, as opposed to you, your kind of lifestyle design, you're creating it for yourself. Were there kind of emotional or mental blocks or anything like that, that were kind of in between the conventional and the post-conventional?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's, in my case, and I'm sure this is true with a lot of other people. It was very difficult for me to challenge the uh, ideals and beliefs that I was brought up with, especially in my family. I mean, in my case is maybe a little bit more dramatic than some people because I was literally brought up, my mother was a revolutionary communist hmm. who actually envisaged that there would be a communist revolution. And, and so you know I was brought up in, in, in many ways, it's a little bit like a fundamentalist religion to be brought up in uh, around that kind of environment. And um, you know, I think it's I think it's very difficult to take the ideas of your parents and to challenge them critically, and think is that does that make sense to me? And is that are these the ideals that I actually agree with and believe in and want for my own life? So on a political level, you know, I I tried to I tried to make sense of communism when I was a teenager, and it just it just collapsed every time I tried to get closer to it, the ideas collapsed for me. It, it didn't make any sense. Um, and uh, the the person who in, in my book, I call him, uh, I change his name to Peter, but, but the person who was my mentor was, was helpful in, in terms of that challenging that side of ideas. Cause he'd also kind of given up on those sort of uh, those sort of um, I, that ideology. But not only that, you know, I, I've chosen to live a, a different way to my parents. My parents broke up when I was very young and they were never married. and I've Thought about what values I have in terms of wanting to raise a family and how I think, you know, what I think kids need and so forth. And I've chosen uh, a very different lifestyle. I'm, I'm married and we're certainly not going to be breaking up. And, you know, I, I, I take that, uh, it's very important to me. But these are things that I had to take what I was brought up with and challenge and think about whether or not I believed in, in these ideals and in these lifestyle practices, if you like, too. And it's really hard. It's very hard to do that uh, with your family. It can also cause a lot of uh, tension if you do that because you are implicitly criticizing your parents if you don't choose to live in the same way as them. And it certainly did for me, and it caused uh, you know, a lot of difficulty. So I think that is one of the big challenges that I see everyone has to face at some point. If you want to individuate, if you want to be your own person, you have to look at the culture you were brought up in and evaluate it critically and, and decide for yourself whether or not you actually come to the same conclusions and the same values that you were brought up with, or whether or not you have to choose for yourself what your ideals are. And that can be a very painful process. I found it a very painful process. Um, so I think that is, is the big challenge. And of course, what happens a lot of the time is that people don't live the life that they would like to live, because in doing so, they know that it would be an implicit criticism of their family or their, or their local community and, and so forth and so they hide themselves and they, they have a secret flame inside for a life that they would like to live but they, they don't actually end up, you know, giving that, giving that life um, a chance for themselves because they, they end up not wanting to upset the people who it would implicitly criticize.
0: I've, I find that as both a therapist and a coach that the majority of the people at least that I've worked with. And most people who come to me actually want to do the growth and development thing, but still run into the their biography, their family dynamics, their culture, their religion, their ethnicity, you know, all those kind of barriers to really express themselves fully as an individual. So it's not surprising that you would, especially coming from pretty hardcore communist. Yeah. Um, when you travel, you travel a lot. Do you find travel as a kind of a nice way or a good way to break the spells of your own culture and your Definitely.
1: own... Definitely. I mean, I I think, first of all, so um, before I started doing the kind of long-term travel with my wife, actually, when I was in my 20s, I started going to live in Berlin. Um, When I was still at college, I went, spent the summers in Berlin, and I eventually, I moved to Berlin, and I got a job there and so forth, and that was just a really uh, eye-opening experience for me, because um, I was away entirely away from my own culture and Berlin in the early 90s was a super interesting place because the wall had just fallen everything was in flux and it was kind of a a really fascinating time to live there and (coughs) on a personal level it also you know when you do that it's almost like you get to decide on a small level okay well who am I going to be I'm here now like I don't have my family around me. Uh, I don't have my, my school friends or my background or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm here. Who, who, who have I brought with me? You know, what baggage have I brought? Yeah. And you get to determine whether or not, you know, I actually, I'm going to leave some of that baggage behind. I'm mm-hmm. going to start, start afresh here. So that I think was a great experience. And, um, I, I just, I had a, such a wonderful time in Berlin. that I eventually I ended up, my PhD was about Berlin. And so I ended up spending more time there and so forth. And, so yeah, I think travel can do that uh, for sure. And, um, and, and that's uh, the first experience of, of it that I had.
0: Tell us a little bit about some of your travels with Europe. <laughs> what was that like? You know, you, you, I just mentioned your time in Berlin and how that was kind of, uh, kind of helped decondition you perhaps from some of your earlier conditioning around family and, and culture. What was it like to travel with uh, your, were you married at the time or did you guys get married after a while? what was the relationship now we
1: started we started traveling before we got married um but we we so we've been uh, through mostly in latin america just because we like going to warm places
0: <laughs> we <laughs>
1: like we like beaches and uh-huh. uh, it's just a, a great quality of life and and it's cheap too so especially if you're living frugally and you want to make your uh, financial independence last then it's a good place to go so um We've been through um, Argentina and Chile, and spent most of the time in Mexico. We've lived all over Mexico on the east and west coasts. And then we also moved to Panama. Mm, right. um, and we've also lived in Spain, um, so that, that's another one. Uh, we intended to settle in Panama, um, but actually what happened is that um, when we got there, we, we really enjoyed ourselves and we had a great time there, But. Uh, my wife got pregnant and then the Zika virus came along. So we decided um, that was the time it had just started. And it was, you know, it wasn't clear exactly how, what a risk was, but it was definitely a, an issue. And we just decided we didn't want to risk it. So um, we came back to the UK and my, my daughter was born here. And then since then we've been uh, traveling around Spain, m- mostly um, in uh, Spain, in, in um, Barcelona and in Catalonia. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're now back in the UK and we're sort of reassessing the travel lifestyle because although my wife and I both love it, it's, it's a different question. When you've got a daughter, you know, when you've got kids, then you have to think about what, what is the best thing for, for them too. And one thing that we notice is that as our daughter gets older, she's definitely, she likes having the predictability of knowing where things are and being able to find her way around. Mm-hmm. And when you travel, I mean, one of the, the great things about travel is seeing new places and, you know, it's kind of fun to land somewhere new after six months and work out again where everything is and how it works and so forth. But it's a different thing, I think, if you're a kid, because the world is already so new and different. So we're sort of in a reassessing stage at the moment. We've just come back. We were in Barcelona um, this this winter for a while, and we're just coming back. Uh, We're just back now in the UK and thinking about what our next steps are and and, um, kind of reassessing what role travel will play, basically because of, um, because of our uh, having a family now. We certainly will do more travel again, but we've got to take into
0: account my daughter as well. Right on. So I, I think you make a point that I think it'd be good to kind of explore a little bit further, it's, it's quite possible to create a, design your own life based on your own values and, and be free in that way, and not have to travel the world. I mean, you, can, you and your family can still, obviously, stay in the UK, and still have the kind of lifestyle you've created for yourself right
1: yeah absolutely absolutely i think um travel <clears throat> is it's a wonderful thing to do but it's not the only aspect of living with more freedom i mean if you go abroad if you go and live abroad then in a way a lot of people do that to escape bad relationships and to escape it's a, it's, a, it's an easy way of extracting yourself from a social environment that you want to have more freedom from but you obviously bring yourself and your own issues with you (laughs) and so I think you can achieve a great deal more freedom in your own life if you even if you don't travel just by reassessing what it is how it is that you want to live and what your relationships are about I mean I mentioned before that I went through a huge change in my life when I quit my career and that involves you know, a lot of relationships ending, including a romantic relationship that I've been in for years, uh, ended at, at, at the time. And that was very difficult. But that is an, a very important aspect of living the kind of life that you want to choose. And that doesn't necessarily involve travel. That's just a reassessment of you know, whether or not you're happy in your personal relationships, your romantic relationship, and whether or not you're able to, whether or not you have the same values and so forth.
0: You know, one of the things that defines you is minimalism. Uh, at least that's what you know. You 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 both talk about on your podcast, and and I read your biography. <laughs> um, talk about both your how how is useful as part of your travel experiences, but also now that you're you're staying at least for the short term in the UK, maybe for the long term, how's that played a role in your life? Both um, for both traveling and where you're stable uh, location wise. Um, but also in terms of just developing the kind of free life you have created for yourself.
1: Well, I had a great experience when I went through this. This is a sort of slow, slow um, change that happened after I quit my career. <coughs> me, and um, moved out of London and started doing travel and, and started doing more and more travel. I, I had this transition to minimalism, and partly just it was actually because of the travel because it was such a hassle. To box up everything. Uh, every time we went away for six months, mm-hmm. we boxed up everything, um, put it all in storage, which cost money and was a little bit stressful and was also an experience where I put all that stuff in storage and I just didn't miss it. You know, that was the in- an interesting thing. And so eventually before we moved to Panama, I sold everything that I owned um, down to what would fit into a suitcase and a backpack. And when we went abroad, uh, that, that was the sum total of my physical possessions was what would fit in the suitcase and a backpack. That's actually a lot easier to do these days because everything is digital than it used to be. I mean, so, for example, I still have all the photographs that I've ever had. They've all just been scanned and they're all just in the cloud. You know, I still have all the notes or, or, or um, documents that I ever wanted. They're just scanned in the cloud. Um, so it's a lot easier to do if you want to preserve things that are meaningful for you. You can preserve the information, if you like, the digital copy. Um, so it's not like you have to, I don't know, if you have a, um, you know, some treasured photographs or whatever, it's not like you have to lose them because everything's digital now. So in some ways, it's a lot easier than it used to be. But it's also, I just found it incredibly liberating because um, it, having stuff is a benefit in life. It's nice to have stuff. Physical, material possessions can can be you know can make life definitely more comfortable and easier, but they also have a certain cognitive load. That you know, having that stuff inside your inside your your life means that there's a little model of all that stuff in your head that you're kind of looking after, you know. Right, right. And um, and so getting rid of it all down to being a, being a minimalist is is it, you know, it really relieves a lot of that cognitive load. This is again something though that it's a challenge now that, um, now that I have a family, because I don't think that, uh, although because just because I'm a minimalist, it doesn't mean that my daughter has to be. Mm-hmm. And so I have to, I have to think about what is the right approach to her life. I mean, I'm not saying that like I, I should deliberately try and give her loads of stuff, um, that, to kind of make it the opposite to me or anything. But I, I also think it's not necessarily just, the default thing to say, right, well, she's going to be a minimalist too. So, you know, she has toys and stuff. I mean, she definitely doesn't have a lot, uh, as, as many as um, some kids do, but I'm not trying to impose minimalism on her. And that's something that we're sort of still kind of working out as well. You know, how do, how do our specific lifestyle choices fit with raising somebody else? who is going to be their own independent person. And some of these things like, you know, I don't think minimalism is an ethical issue. It's not like it's bad to have lots of stuff. I personally find it beneficial to be a minimalist, but it's not like this is a a really a no brainer that my daughter must be a minimalist, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe she's not going to want to do that. And so uh, that's, that's kind of the kind of thing that being a parent forces you to, to think through. It's like just it's interesting, just as I've got myself clear for myself, okay, these are the values that I want to live by. Now it's like, oh, wait a minute.
0: <laughs> what about my daughter? Does she have to live by them too? So <laughs> she's going to grow up. She's going to be a maximalist communist with a 9 to 5 job. for like 70 years.
1: Oh, that would be depressing.
0: One of the things you talk a good bit about on your podcast, I think you just had a recent podcast within the past six months, is on education. Brought up your daughter, um, not to put you on the spot, but you know, once she gets to the age of schooling, if that's in fact part of her education, I make distinctions between schooling and education. You know, what are your thoughts for her? Well,
1: that is a great question and one that we are spending a lot of time thinking about, which is why I'm I'm podcasting about it because I'm reading a lot about it too. And um, my tentative thoughts on it are that. School, especially compulsory school and even the worst of all, state run compulsory schools are essentially a lot like prisons. I mean, in many ways, they are prisons for kids. I know when I look back on my school experience, I had a really bad time in a lot of my schools. Yeah. I mean, I was in quite violent schools. So some yeah. of the schools that I was in were, were definitely uh, worse than they can be if you're in a, you know, a, an easier, nicer neighborhood. But um, even in nice neighborhoods, I think, you know, schools, I, I'm, I feel very critical of the whole experience of school that I had. And also, I don't want to put my daughter in a situation where she's kind of in something that's more or less a prison. Um, I think if my daughter is super interested in going to a particular school, I would have absolutely no problem with that if that was what she wanted to do. The difficulty is, you know, if she doesn't want to be in school, um, then what's the best thing for her to do? And there are obviously alternatives, homeschooling and unschooling and and these kinds of things. So that's what I'm interested in and, and what I'm thinking about at the moment. There's a book by John Holt called Instead of Education, where he made a distinction that makes total sense to me, where he, in his book, he makes this distinction between what he calls schools with a capital S and schools with a little s. And basically the idea is if you choose to go and learn from somebody who you consider to be wise or helpful or or, or whatever, that is a totally different thing to being put in a school. So, for example, if I decide that I want to learn a foreign language and I go to a language center and I, I pay for lessons in this language, I'm making that choice. And maybe we're all sitting in rows and there's a teacher at the front that's fine it's still my choice to do it that it's a totally different thing if someone forces me to go and sit in a class and said you've got to learn this language now this is what you're doing right so that's the way i, I like to think about it it's it, the issue is is the compulsion that's and and what goes along with that is all of the other things that make school feel like a prison and Ultimately, I do agree with John Holt that his what he basically said about school was that school teaches one lesson That's more important than any of any of the other lessons, which is it teaches kids that you don't know what you're doing and You're here whether you like it or not and we will decide for you What it is that you know, you you will be doing with your day and so that is kind of that's very much like the way that a prison feels and so I don't know what we're going to do. I know that if my daughter is super keen on a school, we'll, we'll definitely um, you know, do our best to get her into it, whatever, whatever it is. But in the time before she's able to make that kind of decision and is old enough to, you know, to really understand that stuff, we'll have to make decisions for her. And we'll definitely be looking at some kind of alternative to just you know, a um, typical uh, state school, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I find it interesting here in the the States, that's where I am, uh, self-governance is kind of foundational to our whole whole system, and yet all our institutions are anti-self-governance. Right, (laughs) right. Kind of crazy, especially education. Um, Last question for you. So you obviously are are very thoughtful. You critique the conventional systems. We just talked about education. What other systems uh, in the recent past or maybe in the present day are you like, giving a critical eye towards.
1: Do you mean things that I'm critical of in a similar way towards like I am towards education?
0: Yeah. Like maybe health medicine, you know, fitness, you know, whatever things are kind of floating in your mind that have interest you that you're like, Hmm, the way we're doing it presently is not really the best way of approaching this issue. Well,
1: I think the, the thing that comes to mind for me is that (coughs) One thing that I have um, come to be very critical of is involvement in the drama and theater of politics on an everyday level. I think it's incredibly damaging um, to get yourself involved in the political fight between different parties and and get involved in in politics i mean i I have a standpoint where i'm I'm critical of the entire political process because I think that the best things that you can do in your life happen outside of the state and outside of politics. They happen in civil society. That's where productive things get done like entrepreneurship and where things where you can really do constructive things with your life. But I I see politics as as being, you know, something that really um, has a very corrupting influence on both culture and intellect. It seems to be the place where people's worst irrational prejudices and hatreds find voice and so I think, you know, I, I try to take myself out of politics entirely and focus on life as if politics didn't even exist, as mm-hmm. if the state wasn't even there, and try and just live according to that principle. And so, you know, that I think has a, a if you try and think like that, then it means that you look critically on things like the media and the news and so I've tried to take a different approach to, to following the news. I used to be an avid news follower. I used to listen to the radio every morning. And I thought that was, in a way, part of being an informed person was to know what was going on in the world and stuff. And now I realize that actually the news is really... Is that my phone or yours? I'm okay. good. <laughs> yeah. Um, the news is really just... It should be called the bad news because really all it is is a constant stream of... Uh, uh, stories that are either supposed to get you angry or scared right. um to get you you know to invoke your your fight or flight to to make get you excited basically and there's so much incredible stuff happening in the world that people are not aware of because of the way that the news focuses on the on the negative stuff you know people don't realize that we're living in a time where poverty has been dramatically reduced worldwide where we're actually living in an incredibly positive, constructive time to be alive. It's just politics is the, is the bad stuff. It's the, the good stuff's happening kind of off camera, if you like. Okay. So, so that's, I think, um, one thing that I think, it, you know, it's, it's, it engulfs a huge amount of everyone's time, energy, and emotional effort is involvement in politics. And I think actually, you know, all of the good things that humans do happen outside the political sphere.
0: Nice. Um I, I agree. <laughs> um, so for folks who are interested in your books, in your podcast, and your work in general, where might they find more about you, Jake?
1: Best place to go is the dot Awesome.
0: Well definitely include that in the show notes. We'll include links to all your books as well. Uh it's wonderful to talk to you. And this is gonna sound strange, but you sound like you, you sound like you do on your podcast. <laughs> kinda of funny. Great. Uh, great to talk to you. And as I said at the very beginning of this conversation, you've been an inspiration to me. So I definitely appreciate it about you.
1: Thanks so much, Michael. It's been great chatting to you. Okay.
0: Have a great day.